At the end of the day, when you're faced with an organization like that, you have to make a decision yourself. Um, is this what you want to be associated with? Is this what you want your brand to be? Are you, you know, is this the right place for you? Um, unfortunately, you know, I did the self-reflection and that wasn't the right place for me. I, I've always tried to be at companies because of what they were doing for people. Um, and that, that emphasis on people. Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Karsich. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Building Better Games. Uh, really excited to be here today with my usual co-host, Aaron, and also Dominic Saintfort. Um, he is an HR business partner. He's worked with both Aaron and I in the past. He's also done a lot of stuff in the talent leadership space. Um, I, he's also a coach on the side. So a man of many talents. Um, and he worked with us at Riot Games. So he has a lot of exposure to the games industry as well. Um, yeah, Dom, I'm going to kick it over to you to go ahead and introduce yourself and just let everybody know who you are. Uh, well, thank you, Ben. Well, like you said, I'm a... Uh... HR business partner, worked in HR for pretty much my whole career, um, was at Riot Games for almost four years as an HR business partner and also leading some of their talent management. Um, currently at Coinbase as part of their HR team, senior HR manager, and just been in HR for almost 15 years, from Tesla to Deloitte as a human capital consultant to General Electric. Um, also have my law degree, my MBA, so just <laughs> a little high level on me. I wasn't, I wasn't even scratching the surface when I said man of many talents. Um, so, so I guess one of the things that just jumps to mind immediately um, when you bring up the background of some of the companies you've worked at is this idea um, there are different ways to do HR. And I'm curious, when you hear the term HR, what is that? mean to you as an HR business partner? Um, and what are the different sort of styles of HR that you've seen in games and, and in the broader industries? Yeah, I would say HR is kind of a hodgepodge of a couple of different things. Um, you, you have basically, there's two ways to think about it. You got your specialists and then you got your generalists and your specialists and you'll have like talent acquisitions, your, your recruiters, You'll also have your compensation and benefits, your learning and development, talent management. Um, and those are kind of your specialist roles kind of in your COEs. So that's one part of HR. Um, and you'll even have like, you know, employee relations that do that does all the investigations. Um, so that's one house. The other part of HR that you have is kind of the generalist. Um, and that's what an HR business partner is. So they're more embedded in the into the teams, they handle anything and everything that managers and employees need. So that's one way to think about HR. Another way to kind of think about HR, and it varies based on the maturity of an organization and how they are positioning their HR teams. So some HRs um, are really hands-off. So they're like, hey, come to us only if you got a problem. 
otherwise keep the keep the ship rolling. <laughs> so you get some HR um, and some HR business partners that kind of operate like that, where they're kind of more a hey, hands off, only come to us if you have a problem, and that's how they operate. Then you have more HR business partners to operate more strategically and more as part of the, the team itself. And that's kind of where I operate, um, really embedded into the team, showing up to the team meetings, working hand in hand with managers and leaders and even employees, um, really being that conduit, that support system that I would say everybody needs around the organization. Um, so you get uh, some coaching, you do a little therapy, and you also do some problem solving all across HR. Um, and you touched a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And if you were to broadly state like this, you were saying, hey, some HR organizations are hands off, only come to me if you have a problem. Some are more in there, like you're embedded in the teams so that you can be closer to the problem um, and, and closer to having somebody like they know you, they can go to you more easily. Like, what are those problems? What 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 are the things that come to HR? Yeah, so it could be anything and everything. <laughs> it could be like, hey, a manager might need help. Hey, I really want to develop my direct report. Can you help me on finding opportunities and what that development plan will look like? It could be, hey, we're going through a large org change. Can you help me on that change management plan? How can I do this effectively? What's that communication cascade look like? Um, it could also be, we need to really analyze and think about the talent we have in our organization. Can you help me dissect who my top performers are, who are my consistent performers, and who are those that need just help in development? It could also be things related to like, hey, you know, this person said X, Y, Z. Um, I don't think it was kosher. Can you look into this? Um, so you get a little bit of everything. Even like people are like, hey, my comp's not right. Or, you know, um, I didn't get my last paycheck. And so you get anything and everything. Nice. <clears throat> I, I, and again, I don't know if this is the right thing to dig into right off the bat, but it's the one I'm most excited to talk to you about, um, which is there's clearly a shift happening here in uh, the way we think about sort of talent management and the way that HR shows up in its role there. Like you, you mentioned a couple things, for example, that even as I've experienced it before, like because of working with folks like you, I'm like, whoa, you're you're right. That is a thing HR people can do, which is organizational design, organizational expectation. You mentioned change management specifically, which again, it's weird because even now after I've worked in that environment for a couple of years, it's not an immediate thing where I'm like, oh, change management, that's something HR can help out help out with. But my, my gut is that that's relatively new, like in the overall sort of, um, you know, HR world. Is, is that fair to say? Or like how, what changes are you seeing? Or is it, is it just that that's been not as many organizations have been going that route until recently? Yeah, I would say it depends on the maturity of the organization and how yeah. they're positioning and what they're expecting out of their HR business partners. Mm -hmm. um, because if you look at a lot of the, job descriptions for HR business partners, you'll see change management is one of the core things on there, especially strategic change. So really working with leaders to identify what's the strategy here, what's the why, how are we gonna communicate this effectively so people feel like they're aware of the change and that they're bought into the change. Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends on, like I said, how they're being positioned. And so I would say it is somewhat new um, in terms of that 
HR business partners and HR are operating and um, really moving from just being tactical and kind of process driven to being more strategic mm-hmm. and operating and doing those changes hand in hand with the business. Um, and that's why you'll see HR business partners like myself who are more embedded in the business because we need that business context in order to help facilitate and broker some of those changes effectively. Yeah, what are some of the big shifts in the human resources space that are happening in the last like five years or so, if any? I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I would say one big shift you're seeing is in talent management in general. Um, Typically your, your talent management, mostly what that consisted of was just your performance management cycle. So it's just like, hey, you know, working with a manager on a performance improvement plan for uh, uh, one of their direct reports. Or it just consisted of, hey, we need to get people's ratings into the system and do that type of calibration. Now you're seeing it to be more advanced and you're seeing talent management be more plugged in into talent segmentation. Um, so really looking at, hey, who are our key talent, who are our high performers, who are consistent performers, and who are those that you know just need more development? So you're seeing more of that talent segmentation. You're also seeing it more in, I would say, people analytics is a really huge field that's taken off. The more data we have about people and their, our talent, the more effective we can be in leveraging the talent that we have in an organization. So that's a huge field as well. And that's really taken off as data and analytics have really taken off. Uh, The other field that I would say that you're seeing a lot of a lot of change with is also in how I would say organizations are approaching leadership development and learning and development. Um, Mm -hmm. You've seen a lot of changes from just your typical, hey, take this course to more, I would say, digital learning and development and also making it more bite sized. Um, So this whole concept of the digital learner is coming into organizations and organizations are figuring out how to best leverage that. Yeah, it's that that last one is interesting because as an anecdote, I've seen a lot of big tech companies um, specifically really leaning into that and like building a team of sort of, for lack of a better phrase, adult learning focused experts to build out curriculum. Um, and it pops up everywhere, all over like the, the job market right now. And it, that seems new to me. I mean, I'm used to the idea of having an L&D department, um, but it, it, it's less generic now, I think, than it was before. Oh, yeah, totally. And you're even seeing more gamification of L&D, too, mm-hmm. um, to really accelerate and build more engagement from employees. I, I want to get into, like, what was it like being an HR person in games? But before we do, I want to just, like, just just start throwing punches here, right? Because there's a lot of people out there, and they are cynical about HR. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking about like, well, we want to know who our top performers are. We want to know who our consistents are. We want to know, and everybody's like, those that need to get fired. But you were like, those that need development, right? And and I know, you know, Aaron <laughs> and I have both managed people. We've managed managers. Like, there's there's reality that that get, comes into this. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I'm curious, how is, 
how, what's your experience around that cynicism and that idea of like, ah, crap, you're trying to find out if I'm on the bottom so you can, you know, send me away with my box um, onto hopefully greener pastures, but like, bye-bye, at least you're not here anymore, you know, or whatever. Yeah, I would say two things on that one. One, uh, you caught me using some euphemisms there, okay? So, <laughs> called it out. Thank you, Ben. All right, Let's try to, you know. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, not, not you Taking the taking the gloves off now, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so there's definitely you know a business reality to things, right? You know, yeah. um, in terms of a performance management happens. You know, if people aren't performing, managers double click into that, and that's where you'll see like an HR business partner or, or someone from HR kind of engage on it. Um, so as part of my role and kind of what I do, I'm the person having those conversations with kind of the person and talking about like, Hey, this is where we are. Um, and really helping the manager have that conversation too. Um, mm-hmm. there are a lot of managers that haven't, you know, dealt with a performance management situation on their team. Um, you know, first time managers are just really were luckily and haven't had to deal with that in their career. So really helping coach and structure that conversation for them, for the manager so they can do it effectively. And also really helping the employee through that, too, by being that confidant and that coach and also that advisor. Because sometimes you just have to tell people, it's just like, hey, you know, this really isn't working out. And, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, This is what I can do for you. This is what I can't do for you. And Mm -hmm. just letting them know, like, hey, what would you like to do? Um, As you know, business context changes. Some projects, you know, are really fruitful. Some projects aren't. And. You know, decisions have to be made about, hey, what do we do with the people on this project? And that's also a business decision that sometimes comes into play. So it's never anything personal. Um, and as an HR business partner, you have to kind of compartmentalize that a little bit um, in terms of, you know, you're having those conversations with people. You want to do right by the person. And that's why I always practice transparency there. And you also got to help the manager. You also got to help the company um, and just try to do right by everybody that you can. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's something that is almost like this balancing act. I remember we talked about this and, um, you know, for those that don't know, Aaron and I actually worked with Dom. He was our HR business partner for some amount of time and we both went through some complex situations, let's say. Um, and uh, I did always appreciate your transparency, but yeah, there's like this balancing act of, okay, I'm your advocate, simultaneously I'm the business's advocate, simultaneously I'm the manager's advocate. Um, and I'm trying to balance all those things as we try to reach a conclusion that ideally works for everybody. But if it doesn't, you know, like, I'm sorry, sometimes somebody has to take a hit. Um, Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, while the gloves are off after all, um, I I wanted to ask you about this because that's what Ben just alluded to came up for me. Um, and you know, you have, you have experience um, on the legal side of things as well, like a lot of experience. And one of the things that's interesting is this kind of sort of philosophical discussion about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, right? And mm. and as we're talking about this, I feel like HR is in the middle of that conversation as it pertains to like sort of what does it really mean to honor a company's values versus like what are the like policies and procedures that we have written down? And one of the things I always liked about working with you is like, I, I always felt like you were trying to do the right thing. Like you actually really cared about the people you worked with. And it's not to say that most HR people don't, but it is to say, I think back to the cynicism, 
I think what makes what has made me cynicism uh, what has made me cynical about it in the past and caused a lot of cynicism amongst managers when it comes to HR is when it's like do I do I really feel like I can trust those people or not? Like, do those people actually have my back as a human being, or are they just sort of like executing the sort of like corporate machine? Like, are they sort of representatives of the process in the background? And and I'm curious, like, because you know, back to Ben's points, that, that that's got to be a difficult line to ride at times because you are accountable to so many different parties. What what was that like for you? And like, how how do you sort of guide yourself through that day to day challenge? Yeah, I'd say you know, one, it really depends on the company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some some <laughs> companies are a little easier um, to kind of navigate yeah. that than others. Uh, you know, Tesla, it was a little hard to navigate that. Um, yeah. At Riot, it wasn't hard. Um, yeah. Because, you know, the company really emphasizes doing right by people. And they, they want to do right by people, you know. So mm. sometimes you have more more levers that you can pull for someone. Mm. And you're able to work with them a lot more to get to a good place. Um, but also, it's just having compassion for, you know, the situation and what the person's going through. Some HR business partners, you know, they're not able to have that type of connection. They're not able to relate really well. And, and people can read that. You know, people read like, mm-hmm. hey, you're just trying yeah. to process me. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, I know you're trying to process me. Um, but, you know, my approach for it is always just, like I said, transparency, really trying to relate. And then working with every tool that I have to do what is right for the person. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes decisions are already made that are out of the HR's hands because it's really Mm -hmm. on the managers and the leaders. They made the decision. HR, we're going ahead and like executing that, but always doing that with consideration, compassion, and empathy, and just being transparent Mm -hmm. about that. It's just like, unfortunately, you know, that decision's been made. That's not something I can do. This is what I can do. And then you coach people through it. it's just like, hey, I know you want to talk about this, but let's actually talk about this. And this is why we should talk about this. You know, what's been done, that's some cost. It's in the past. Let's talk about what's going to be best for you going forward. Um, and just having that real talk with someone. Yeah. So, okay. So so to jump over a little bit and to get into, um, so you were in HR and games. Games is a an interesting space, the game development world, and you were in an interesting company in that interesting space at Riot. Um, what would have you found to be unique about either the games industry or Riot or whatever um, from the HR perspective? Yeah, I would say games is interesting for a couple of different reasons. One, the people are super interesting. Because uh, <laughs> you, you got to think, of, you know, people who go into gaming, they're gamers um, at heart, especially that was especially true at Riot at the time. Um, you know, at Riot, it was very strong gaming culture. Um, and that was an employee base. And so when you have kind of that culture built, you get some interesting situations that pop up. Uh, <laughs> like, for example, I had to talk a girl out of a tree uh, at one point because uh, she climbed up in the tree. She did her best thinking from the tree. And so obviously I couldn't just let her stay up in the tree. So I had to talk her out of a tree. I was just sitting there for 10 minutes about why it's a good idea to come down from the tree. Uh, and so you get weird situations like that just because gaming is just... Didn't know, you know that. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> and so you get you get situations that you would least expect in gaming. Um, but gaming is also interesting because of the intersection it plays at. Because you have technology, you got software engineers, you also have the creative, um, you got artists, um, you also have like design, product managers, development managers. So you get a little bit of everything because it even entertainment. Um, Gaming is one of those rare places where you get that type of intersection. Um, most companies, you know, in tech, you're just doing tech. Um, but in gaming, you get everything. So it's a, it's a interesting mix and it's interesting problems. And it's kind of like different cultures within a company almost. Mm. So you get like more, more kind of subcultures that just all coexist together and you have to be able to manage, you have to be able to jump from those subcultures easily like okay now i'm now i'm talking to an artist or an art lead now i'm talking to an engineer those are often different headspaces or something exactly. yeah it's it's interesting when i hear you say that because one of the things that i experienced or i should say we have all experienced all three of us here um working in games is uh versus enterprise tech which is like i've 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 seen and and worked at companies in enterprise tech where <laughs> Um, engineering kind of runs the show and a lot of those companies and like, there's not really a lot of friction between engineering and other disciplines because engineering wins and like everything kind of flows back into engineering in games. It was uh, like one of the things I I've seen actually at many game companies, but I experienced personally working in games was like real competition and friction and cultural differences between different disciplines and having to work through that and resolve that and frustrations coming up. It's like, well, you know, product management is doing this crap and we're all sick of them. And, you know, and, and, and if art could just get their crap together here or, you know, you know, there's, it's interesting that you, you, it's just normal human conflict stuff. Right. But that, that you, because you have so many different disciplines and skill sets coming together and having to work together, some of that natural human conflict happens it's oh definitely definitely and the and you if you look at it from an hr lens it's it's it gets real complex because then you got to think about hey how do we compensate our software engineers versus our artists how do we compensate you know our product mm -hmm. managers and compared to those who are doing like entertainment film and television and then you got to also think it's like, hey, now we got to think about what's that career trajectory look like for an artist? Is that the same as a software engineer? Do we have the same levels? Um, is it the same type of competencies that we're going to yeah. use across the board? What's that variance look like? Are we going to value our software engineers more than we're going to value an artist and pay, you know, a premium for our software engineers? Or are we going to pay that premium for our artists because they're driving more of kind of that strategy and that competitive advantage for us? Um, and even the way you would do like, you know, standards and performance management, it's like, all right, you know, the, with like an artist, it's like, all right, how do you judge whether someone's meeting the standard? Uh, you know, is their artwork good? What is that? Like, what's that rule of thumb? What's that standard? How can we make, mm -hmm. you know, that objective for them? And what's that criteria for a software engineer? It's kind of easy to do that. Um, even for like music, it becomes really hard to kind of do that differentiation. Um, so there's a lot of complexity in there in terms of like, you know, like I said, comp, you know, career ladders, compensation, yeah. um, even learning and development. How do we provide something for everyone for their growth and development? Yeah, actually, that last one, the L&D side um, that when you said that, I was like, oh, gosh, yeah, because you have to think about 
man, the, the difference between making a designer better versus making an artist better versus making a, uh, an, like a composer better, like there's, there's some overlap perhaps between those three things, but there's a lot that's not, especially if they're kind of taking an expert track. Well, and you also, you have to understand what the different pieces are too. It's not just good enough to be like, Hey, design people figure out what good design looks like engineering, figure out what good engineering looks like, because back to some of the points you just made, Dom, there is an intersection where it's like, okay, well, to some degree, we're holding everybody accountable for, I'm making this up here, but maybe it's company culture, like your adherence to company cultural values. And so that is actually like across the board, everybody has that, but where's the specific division between that and what you're doing as a designer? Like you, there's so, you have to go in really detailed and it's like you said, it's super complicated. Yep. And you hit on it. It's kind of like, Hey, there's, from an HR standpoint, there's going to be something that's applicable to everyone. But mm -hmm. within that, where are the degrees of differences? Um, I'm, I'm, I am still also curious what, what other differences have you seen between the games space and the non-game space? If you have any, any interesting, I mean, other than uh, getting people out of trees, which is, uh, <laughs> that's definitely a unique story, which I can totally believe happened at a game company. Like what else did you observe over your years working in, in the various industries? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, kind of what you had on before is that sometimes software engineering or tech kind of runs the company. Um, that's pretty similar to other just tech companies in general. Yeah. Um, you definitely find that. I would say in general, the HR practices are pretty much the same. Um, you have your COE, so you have your different like, you know, compensation benefits. You have all those big groups. HR is pretty developed. Um, I would say in gaming, the thing that is a little different for gaming is this, is this competition for talent um, in the gaming space is really interesting. Because mm. in a certain way, gaming and tech, you know, you would think they're different. Like, hey, you know, your fan companies, they're up here. You know, gaming is going to be, you know, a slightly lower. So when it comes to the competition for talent, though, hey, the gaming companies are competing for the same talent. Um, a software yeah. engineer over in a fan company is surely welcoming the gaming company. Um, and everybody wants the best talent. So that competition gets really interesting. And then you have gaming companies that have to compete. Um, and how do they compete effectively for that talent? Are we going to pay what a fan company is going to pay for a software engineer? Can we do that? Is that feasible? Um, so for gaming companies to remain competitive in terms of talent is an ongoing thing. So for gaming companies, they really have to leverage more of the culture and the added things that they're bringing and that value proposition for a candidate other than just compensation. You know, yeah. you can't just compete on compensation alone nowadays. It really has to be about the culture. It really has to be about that value proposition. Yeah. Right. The idea that I get to work in games is, is actually, that's, that's worth dollars. Uh, in some sense. Yeah, you get the working games. You also are going to launch games because, um, you know, if you're not launching and people don't feel like they're actually creating something new, you're going to miss out on that. Um, and I would say it's just, are you creating a culture that people want to be at? They feel like they're going to grow. They feel like they belong. Um, mm. And I would say Riot did a good job at that. So, Aaron, what do you think diving into... Um I'd advice or do you want to keep going? I'd really like to dig into the topic of, 
okay, you've worked with a ton of different leaders and you've seen leaders of tons of different strokes, tons of shapes and sizes as it were. Um, I'm so curious because again, I have my perspective on that as a video game producer. Um, and you know, I, I, I remember even working with you and thinking like, oh man, I wonder all the stuff that Dom has seen and like what learnings he's extracting about organizations. Like you probably have, for example, opinions on like where junior managers struggle or where senior managers struggle as they're moving into a new sort of scale of their career, um, just off the top of my head. So like, as I bring that up, what comes up for you? Like, what are all the sort of takeaways or some of the takeaways or learnings that you you've got over the years by watching all these different managers kind of do their and leaders do their things in organizations. Yeah, I would say for the frontline managers, the thing that pops up the most where you were kind of going over that is just what they really struggle with is providing feedback to their direct reports, um, mm. providing consistent and direct feedback. Mm-hmm. So, because a lot of them get in trouble where they just, you know, because they were used to be an IC, they graduated or got promoted from being like an individual contributor to now being a manager. So in some instance, they're managing people that used to be their peers. Um, and that creates a, I would say, a dynamic that is new for them. And they don't necessarily feel comfortable in now assuming that hat and that role as a manager. Um, so that becomes a difficulty and a barrier that we just have to coach them over um, and help provide them frameworks and just encourage them how they can provide that consistent and direct feedback. Um, So for new managers, that's the primary thing. For senior managers, people who are managing other managers, um, it becomes a little different. For them, it's more about, all right, how do I let go a little bit? How do I delegate more? Mm. And how can I provide direction and vision and let people operate within that space of ambiguity? Because for them, they've gone from managing a team or a number of direct reports, and now they're managing other managers and it's letting go and not being so directive that they have to kind of work on. For senior leaders, I would say, for them, it's building up more of the kind of that executive presence. Um, How do you communicate Mm. now with like a potential director or, or VP? Um, it's very different than when you're communicating with a senior manager. Um, so learning how to communicate to other senior leaders effectively. And I would say just being able to lead by asking questions. You're now more of a coach in that position. So how do you lead without you know providing someone with the answer, but coaching them through it? So that coaching skill is something that you know, those senior leaders are, I often come and see as kind of a thread that they just have to work on a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's so interesting. And I love how you sort of articulated the three layers. I'm excited to ask you what, like, I, I imagine there are certain things that get in the way at each level. And I'm wondering if you want to explore a couple of those. Um, like, for example, like, what are the biggest things you see getting getting in the way or how do junior leaders get in the way of themselves as they're growing into those roles, taking on direct reports for the first times? 
Yeah, I would say they get the primary obstacle um, that kind of gets in the way for like a, a junior um, manager or someone who's managing for the first time or is a frontline manager is they don't know when they necessarily ask for help. Um, so they'll be dealing with the situation on their own or thinking it's going okay. Um, but then it hits the head and they never escalated to anyone. They never asked for help. They didn't provide the awareness that they were dealing with it. Um, Cause you know, for some reason you see this tendency where they really just want to handle it on their own and kind of keep it more in-house um, when in fact they needed to draw someone in. Um, and so that's the common barrier, kind of an obstacle that gets in their own way, so to speak. Um, and then for senior managers, the thing that gets in their way, you kind of see it is as they try to navigate the water, so to speak, the thing that they constantly are struggling with is just, you know, not necessarily asking the question. Um, you know, some of them operate a little too much on autopilot and kind of are like, hey, he's got it, you know, or they got it or she's got it um, to kind of their direct reports who are all already managers. Um, but they lose sight on that. They also have to keep tabs on things. Um, you know, sometimes managers struggle. Um, and, but if they're not asking those questions and really just, you know, providing and being that support system for their managers, they'll lose sight of that. Um, and their managers will struggle. Mm. There's, there's an interesting nuance there and, and, uh, taken at its most, if you, if you are overly reductionist, it looked contradictory because on the one hand you were saying, Hey, what they've got to do is let go and delegate and all these things. And now you're saying like, Hey, they have to still stay in touch. They can't just like completely hand things over to the direct reports. It's still important to ask questions. It's still important to be a support structure. And I, I, I love that. I love that capturing of sort of a nuance of, of that role. Yeah. The thing you're, the stuff you're letting go of is not the same thing that you're trying to capture with the last part you mentioned, right? What you're trying to let go of is the tactics and what you're trying to involve yourself in is the big picture and the support system and like all that, right? Uh, Aaron, you're sounding like someone that's been there before. You know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Never. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's say I'm I am a I'm a frontline leader or maybe first time manager, and I'm in the games industry. Um, what do you? wish I knew about HR. I wish you knew as a fr first and like frontline leader is uh, HR is there to help you, you know, leverage us. Okay. Because we are another support mechanism, support structure for you. Okay. So we're going to be helping you with any issues that comes up. If you know, if your direct report is dealing with something, don't be afraid to escalate to us, provide that awareness and let us help you. Um, and let us know that someone is struggling or dealing with something that we can help them with. Because um, we have resources and we have processes that we can help manage things so it doesn't go you know, to the left and we can keep mm -hmm. it on track. Um, so that's the one thing I would say for junior or first time managers is really leverage your HR business partner and HR to help you be effective and also help you focus on what you should be focusing on and not this other stuff, which we can take off your plate. Mm, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, 
you bring that up and it brings me back to a memory uh, where I showed up to a team and there was like somebody who there were all these sort of issues with, you know, and they just seemed like, oh, there's all these personal conflicts and like, you know, it doesn't seem like it's working and they don't seem aligned, but, and everybody's like, I saw, I heard a lot of complaining about the individual. And, um, what's interesting is I, I was, um, not directly, I was like the leader of the leaders, let's say in that, in that space. Um, and I didn't go to HR. And now, as I hear you say, I was like, man, I should have, I should have actually gone to HR and asked them about this um, because I didn't. And we resolved it. I think we resolved it fairly well, but it was also somewhat blunt force, um, if that makes sense. Like the way I sort of approached that was like, hey, this is, I, I see a path where, you know, some people are saying this person's amazing. And then I see a lot of just mistrust. And I was almost like, I need to get this person out of here if they're actually highly, highly valuable to the company, because I'm worried we're going to walk to a path where this person gets fired because frankly, they did something or ticked off the wrong person or something happened. But there's so much um, from their discipline, there's so much support for them that I kind of just sort of forced the issue and they ended up moving to a different part of the company where I think they were actually really successful. Um but it's funny because I remember going through that and I was like, what do I do? And I and it never crossed my mind to go, well, you should ask your HR business partner about that. Um, and and it was it was like it was high stress. <laughs> well, could have I could have used help. <laughs> well, Ben, you were also at a time probably there wasn't uh, very many HR business partners around and riot yeah. in those those heydays. Uh, yeah. I'd be surprised if you knew who your HR business partner was back then. I, I didn't know. Actually, <laughs> well, that's you know, true. and it's it's so interesting because like listening to you talk about all this, Dom, because like you paint a picture of a reality that I think is so exciting and so attractive in like the way that HR and talent partners can interact with managers and leaders as this support system. But it's like at what you you used a phrase which <laughs> I immediately had an like emotional response to, which is really funny, which is go to HR. And it's so funny because when I when I think of going to HR, it sounds really bad, doesn't it? Like it sounds like it sounds yeah. almost like I'm just like like I'm a medieval knight and I just like took off my gauntlet and just slapped someone across the face. Like he went to HR. Like that's some serious shit. You know what I mean? Like again, I'm being melodramatic, but like I think that's the sort of yeah. traditional way of viewing it. Like if things got to HR, like if you went to HR shit's getting real. Like we're, we're about to fight or some, somebody's about to go down or something terrible is about to happen. Right. But at the same time, it's like, what I actually remember is people having lunch with you and you just being around and having conversations and like forming relationships and making connections and like really been showing up to meetings, like strategy meetings, and then giving us feedback afterwards. And like that, it, th when I think of the way my body responds and my mind responds to somebody going to HR is like a completely different thing from that experience. And that, that dichotomy is so interesting to me because I think, again, that world you're painting is a very different world than probably what a lot of people think of when they think of going to HR, you know? <laughs> yeah. there's, there's definitely a, a misconception. Um, there's definitely a misconception there. I would also say, you know, and for you guys, you know, as team leads and development managers, you guys actually do um, a good amount of what an HR business partner would do or what HR do. You mm -hmm. guys solve conflicts with your, you know, with different people on the team. Um, and so sometimes, you know, you guys are really adept at handling that. You don't need us. That's fine, too. Um, but, mm. you know, some sometimes, you know, as long as you have a good idea when 
when to draw us in. You just have to know kind of like, all right, this situation, eh, let me call it. Let me call Dom. <laughs> or if you feel yeah. like you got it, that's fine too. But just having that awareness, you just got to know when it hits a certain level, then you should definitely call in HR. Yeah. When, when you were describing, you know, we asked you when should a junior leader pull you in, there was almost this, this I had this like pull of sadness because I, I recognize that you have probably seen many situations where at the 11th hour, someone finally called you in and you walked in and were like, oh man, if you'd pulled me in at the third hour, right? Like if you pulled me in while this was fresh, and but by now, you know, you, like you said, decisions have already been made. There's a lot, and and I I might have been able to really help. And in in this case, you know, effectively by bringing me in so late, by bringing me in after so much has happened and so many conversations, and all the leaders are already aligned in a direction. Like, and you almost I'm my hands are tied by time and and what is in the past that I can't change. And I could just imagine like you must see a. You, <laughs> There must be a lot of sad moments for you when you when you step step into that room and you're like, this is what's going on. And you're just like, ah, dang it. Yeah, you definitely run into those situations where you just wish like, hey, if we had just connected earlier and I probably could have helped you out a lot better. But now, because you got to think HR, we we help coach people, but we're not the necessarily decision makers, you know? mm -hmm. the leaders are the decision makers, the managers, the decision maker. And we can advocate and help protect, in a sense, like different people, whether it's a manager or an employee, depending on the situation. But, you know, that becomes hard if decisions have already been made, like you pointed out. Ben, let me know how you feel about this. Um, Dom mentioned some really cool stuff earlier that I didn't even think about talking about around understanding people better through data and also mm -hmm. uh, assessment and like employee assessment and what that means. Um, I Ben and I have talked a lot about different kinds of review systems and um, it's such a tricky thing. Like, you know, I remember the first time I was exposed to a 360 review and I was so excited <laughs> about the philosophy behind that. I was like, wow, this is yeah. gonna change everything. And 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 it's not to say, I, I know we're all kind of chuckling a little bit right now. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with a 360 review, but I, I think I learned a lot about the nuance of employee assessment over the years. And, you know, like an example is uh, 360 reviews can go terribly wrong when they become a popularity contest. Right. And, um, and it's, I, I, no one wants them to become that, but I think they very easily can if the wrong incentives are present. So, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about like, what are the different kinds of review systems you've seen? Like wh what are the sort of pitfalls and challenges you've seen there? Cause that seems to be a, something that a lot of people are thinking about now. And I just want to jump in and make like this really, that what an, a, an experience I had that you guys may have shared. Um, when, when I was at a company, they rolled out 360 reviews. They all happened in December and <laughs> Everybody was like, this is going to be super open, you know, give all the feedback, give all the harsh critique, give everything. And that first year, I'm not kidding, in February, all these people got fired. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe it was just in my little neck of the woods or my little part of the company or whatever, but like all these people got fired. And I remember thinking afterwards, oh, there's no way everybody's going to be honest next year. Like, <laughs> it doesn't even matter if it was coincidence. You know, it was just like the, the way that people could associate, like we rolled out 360 reviews 
And then two months later, we're like, oh, bye, everybody, right? Like, and and I, I just remember thinking, yeah, okay, cool. Well, let's let's not put the person who's going to give me bad feedback on my 360 <laughs> review then. Like, I don't want to. And certainly, if I like a person or even if I don't hate them, let's not say anything bad about them in the 360 review. So anyway, that that was just something I've seen happen where it's like, and immediately the whole process is like corrupted. <laughs> ben, you, you hit on why a lot of companies don't like 360s. <laughs> <laughs> right there. You know, one, you're just going to put your friends um, or the people that, you know, like you and they're going to give you good feedback. Or, you know, the other thing is, you know, there's always someone in the organization that gets overburdened with 360s. Like everybody mm -hmm. wants it from this, the same few people. So some people have like 20 360s to do. It's just like, this is crazy. I had, I had 29. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you get that element and also you got to think most people who are going to write about you they're probably going to write all the positives they're not necessarily going to give you or anyone for that matter real constructive feedback um it's really going to be more on the positive end and so a lot of companies they do either two things one they either get rid of the 360s and they don't rely on it because it's not the information they get isn't really probative um, because a lot of it's going to be positive and because it's just a time sunk or time sink in terms of that all these people have to now do these uh, 360 reviews. Mm -hmm. So some companies just get rid of them or the other option is some companies just don't use them for performance input. They're really just there for development. Um, mm -hmm. and so knowing that, and it gives people, cause some people don't want to do the three sixties cause they don't like, I don't want to negatively impact someone else's career by writing this. Um, yeah. and so some people, so framing it more as development gives people an opportunity to have a little bit of a safeguard that they're not impacting someone's career or their livelihood by potentially writing, you know, something that's not favorable. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, that, there's. That's uh, a, like a poor outcome. And then on the other side, actually, if things get, can get nasty as sometimes they can, you know, I, I've seen situations where it's like, let's bring up the last five years of this person's 360 review. And you're seeing like some like some some haterade, for lack of a better term, from like five years ago from somebody who doesn't even work at the company anymore. No one can validate whether this person was just off their rocker or not. But we're like taking this seriously as like, well, that sounds a lot like the feedback they got this year. Clearly, they're not improving. And it's like you're just stacking assumption on assumption on assumption. <laughs> and now this person's got this sort of permanent record, right, that they can't clear um, of some, you know, some stuff that no one can validate from eons ago. So, Aaron, you bringing up the, the content of the actual 360s made me think of another reason why people don't like the 360s is because not everybody is going to write something that's, you know, PC. <laughs> and so you mm. do sometimes run into 360s where there's some charge language, there's some yeah. gendered language, and it's mm. just like, I really wish you wouldn't have put that on paper. <laughs> and I know you didn't mean anything by it, and it was just, yeah. you know, but yeah, the awareness, yeah. the context. And so, yeah, yeah it's another pitfall. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense too. And again, like in, in understanding context gets harder and harder as more time goes by, right? It's like, does anyone even remember what happened? Like, why was he saying that? Or it's just, you know, it's so we we get um, some of our listeners are from 
larger companies like Riot, like Yay, Activision, um, you know, Blizzard, that sort. Um, some are from like startups. And uh, what what would you say, you know, a lot of startups, like it's rare that you see a startup like, okay, my second hire, my HR business partner, right? right. Um, so it's usually less of a function there, but there's still something, there's a, there's, there's a role that is played um, and somebody has to be doing that even before your scale might enable you to have an HR department. Um, how do you see that or how would you think about that if you were like advising a startup about how to relate, like a game startup, about how to relate to these sorts of issues and opportunities? Yeah, so like I said, um, usually, usually startups deal with it in a couple of different ways. One way they'll deal with it is that hey, we're not at scale. We don't need someone full time. So they'll partner with another company to provide it, um, kind of like a, a PEO. Um, so basically they handle all like the, the benefits, they'll be your HR on call. So some companies, some smaller companies just deal with that. They just outsource it. Um, and what's PEO? Sorry. Uh, it's a employee organization. Uh, I forget the actual acronym, but that's just what they're called. Okay. Um, okay. But so some companies will outsource it. Other companies what they'll do, they'll actually have somebody wear like a dual hat. So it might be like mm -hmm. someone that does the front office or something like that and wear an HR. Um, so they're doing like, you know, the event planning, maybe they're even like, you know, an EA of a short um, and they're doing HR. Uh, so some companies will do that too. Other companies will just wait until they get a scale or they'll have like, you know, they'll have like a pseudo HR, which is like someone who's doing like, you know, team health um, type of activities. Okay. And what do you think, like if you were, if you were advising a startup, what, what path would you recommend? Yeah, I would say start small, you know, you don't need a lot. I think you have other priorities than thinking about HR um, specifically. I think as you grow and as you scale, you know, the employee experience, your employee well-being overall will be more important and you can invest in it by hiring kind of a someone more dedicated as an HR business partner or HR professional or you know head of HR would probably be what they hire initially kind of overseeing like talent acquisitions so recruiting compensation so kind of more of a jack of all trades that's probably the best hire for a startup just someone who can do everything um, rather than having like a a specialist on board. When so maybe that part this is partly related to HR, but I'll call it people leadership, or uh, I, I hate the term management. Sometimes it, it's a weird kind of corporate -y term, but like people leadership, like taking mm -hmm. care of people in the context of work. What I mean, I, I, no doubt you've developed your own philosophy about what good looks like over the last like ten years of doing this. Like what what do you want to see happening in the broader space of people leadership what do you think what changes do you think are exciting what changes do you think need to be made like where do you want to see things go in the next 10 years uh, i think people leadership i think there it'll always be some type of um it's going to be traditional i don't think we'll see a lot of differences in terms of you know people leadership in terms of like just the mechanics of it. You'll always have like a manager, you mm -hmm. know, senior manager, uh, a VP and a director. So you'll always have that type of org structure. I don't think that's going anywhere. There are some companies that have played around with just getting rid of all managers. 
Um, <laughs> it's an interesting experiment. Uh, but I think, so fundamentally, I don't think it's going to change. I do think leaders themselves, their skills and their capabilities, we are seeing the evolution in that, um, you know, being more of an authentic leader, extreme ownership. Um, so we are seeing more, and obviously just leadership and development in general, and the, our ability to help people actually develop as leaders, I think our abilities are actually growing. And there's more people taking on executive coaching. Um, I think that's something mm -hmm. more companies need to leverage, and they are starting to leverage more to really help their leaders grow and develop. I think we'll see that trend continue and accelerate even more. And we also saw it during like COVID in general, just coaching, especially virtually, um, especially with employees being you know, remote and stuck at home, having someone to talk to, someone to coach through different situations and problems just became pivotal. Mm -hmm. That that actually is another topic we, we often ask around, okay, cool, now you're an HR business partner in this wonderful remote world we live in. <laughs> um, like what's, what's different? What adjustments have you had to make to be effective? Yeah, I would say the difference is you don't get the, because as an HR business partner, a lot of our role is connecting with people. Um, we're connecting to, you know, employees, managers, senior leaders, and building up that trust and that rapport. So in a remote environment, it's a, a little bit more difficult because um, you're not mm -hmm. seeing everybody all the time. You're not necessarily in the meetings. You don't get to walk the hallways with someone and just sit down and have a conversation and just be like, hey, let's, you know, wanted to go for coffee, have lunch. Um, so those type of interactions are hard to come by in a remote environment. So you have to be a lot more intentional. You have to build up the rapport, build up the trust a lot faster. Um, so that's just, you know, really being intentional about getting time with people and just be like, hey, I'm just booking this time as a coffee chat. I just want to get to know you a little bit better. Um, or just really asking questions that really help you get to know what's going on. So not so much, you know, telling people or providing updates, but asking people how they're doing. Right, what's going on over there? Is there anything I can do? Um, so you really got to showcase that you're there to support them. You can add value really quickly in the remote environment and consistently. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a follow-up question there. And uh, I apologize if it sounds like a setup because I'm not sure what your view is on this. Uh, the, the, the remote work conversation is something we we've spent a lot of time thinking about and it's a hot topic right now. And and I dare say that like aspects of it feel almost political with how incredibly hypercharged they are. Um, you know, like uh, just this morning, Elon came out today and sent yep. that email, right? That everyone's talking about like, come into work or leave basically, um, come into the office or leave. And, and when you see that dialogue happening, I think it's pretty clear that most of the proponent, most of the people who are proponents of remote work, most of the people who are feeling like this is an evolution, like this is a good direction that we've gone since COVID, um, that argument I think is well understood. But I'm curious back to what you were just talking about. Are there any visible stresses on organizations or leaders or teams that you're seeing now that we're all remote when it comes to the connection side when it comes to the human side have you seen any real effects of that yeah i would say the well one backing up to just elon um you can't be surprised yeah. about you know his stance <laughs> no. there um no yeah no. if you, if you no. one if you, even if you know anything about the culture of tesla like it is high performance high 
high work. <laughs> so, so yeah, Elon's basically like, hey, I need to get my money worth for hiring all these people. Um, yeah. So yeah. Also, Tesla really doesn't have to. Their name brand is so good that you know they don't have to dangle remote work as a carrot for people to want to go there. You know, other companies, yeah. you know, yeah. that's part of their value proposition is enabling people to work mm-hmm. remotely. And that's a benefit and a draw for some people. Um, but back to your original question, just about, you know, how remote work has provided, you know, maybe a detachment or a stress on kind of that, the personal connections, you definitely see it. Um, and the principle, and you see it in two ways. One, in terms of like information flow, um, it's harder for information to flow down. You have to be intentional. You really have to have those meetings set up to have that information flow. Otherwise, people are just, you know, not getting as much information as they used to. So they're not getting that awareness of different things that are happening in the organization. The other way you see it show up is with some creative teams. Um, because they're not meeting as often, they're not collaborating, they're not having those um, brainstorming sessions. You see it take its place on creative teams. Um, And it's really interesting. If you ever see like a remote team actually have like an in-person offsite where they meet each other for the first time, just how happy they are to be around each other, engaging with each other and actually learning about each other. Uh, Because at Coinbase, we're completely remote. Um, And so many of the employees have never seen each other face to face. But when we have offsites, it's just, it's a really powerful moment. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so interesting when hearing you say that, like, yeah, you know, now that you're remote and everybody's at home and we communicate through a, a screen, essentially, you know, you have to have meetings to make sure that information is getting exchanged. And here I'm, here I am thinking about all the people I've managed over the last seven years and telling them that one of my principles of meetings is that you should never use a meeting purely as a method to communicate information. You should go talk to people or like all these tools that nobody has anymore, basically. And I'm like, I'm sorry I ruined your careers, everyone I've ever managed. I apologize. I did not know that there was going to be a pandemic. I hope you'll forgive me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and what's so funny is like, again, we already have this like meeting smorgasbord in our in the tech industry. Like we're, we, we're like, just we love our meetings. You know what I mean? And we were already having problems before this. If we're not back to <laughs> back now, every here we day, are. like what are you even doing with yeah. your life? Yeah, exactly. And now even worse, the only way we can communicate anything is through meetings. And so, uh, we, yeah, that's, that is just piled the problem on top yeah, of the Is that either meetings right? or... Slack, right? That's the that's the two. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, to take the pessimistic angle, because Aaron took the optimistic one. Um, what are you worried about in the video game industry, the tech industry, like from an HR perspective, or just you as like as you see leadership, as you see where the world is headed? It's like, oh man, if it goes that way, that's a cliff or whatever. Yeah, I'm worried about one just the watering down of cultures and gaming companies. Um, You know, a lot of people get in gaming because of the passion they have for games. Um, They're a gamer. I'm a gamer. Um, A lot of people go into it because they had that core gaming experience and they grew up with that passion for games. And 
you see companies now becoming more, I would say, you know, I'm just going to say it, corporate. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so that core gaming culture is now being like watered down, saturated with the corporate um, ideologies or, you know, corporate perspective. It's like, hey, you know, bottom line driven, you know, profitability, revenue. Yeah. We just got to launch because we got to make the money. Um, I think, you know, I worry about gaming companies just losing what makes them great. Um, in terms of leadership, the thing that worries me about leaders is, one, I don't think, you know, in terms of leadership is a couple of different things. One is just we're not having as many gamers or people who embody the culture in leadership. Um, being mm-hmm. instilled in leadership now, you have people who are just, you know, Harvard Business School or, but just say uh, you get more people from more of a corporate background um, and yeah. they're missing out on, they can't relate to the culture as much. They can't drive it as much because it's kind of alien and foreign to them. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the risk that I see with leadership um, principally. So, so Dom, I wanted to ask you, like, is there any like major challenge or major inflection point in your career up to this point uh, where you kind of went in as Dom A and came out as Dom B? It was like so tra- transformational for you. And, and is that something you'd be interested in talking yeah, a little bit yeah, about? Yeah, I can definitely talk about that. Um, <laughs> I would say for me one of those situations or probably the situation was when I was basically tasked with performing a, you know, involuntary termination. I basically had to fire someone that I disagree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet the decision had been made. Um, and I had to tell that person because normally, you know, the managers, some managers will do it. Um, initially they'll do like the first part be like, Hey, yeah, today's your last day. Um, and this is why, or they'll do like very cliff notes and then they quickly get out the room. <laughs> so mm-hmm. not to have a lot of back and forth. Um, and then it's my job to sit with them and kind of walk them through the, the next steps, collect the paperwork, also answer any questions. Mm-hmm. If we do any type of like severance agreement or anything like that, walk them through that and answer the questions. Um, so I was faced with this situation, I didn't agree on the basis of why we were letting this person go. Um, I really enjoyed this person's company, thought they were a great leader, um, but through circumstances that were out of their control and they tried their best to do it. Um, and at the end of the day, you can't, you can't get over the at-will employment. Um, so just because it was unfair and not necessarily something I agreed with. It was what was decided. Um, and there was no mm-hmm. like illegality or anything like that. It was just, you know, the way kind of things happened. Um, and so having mm-hmm. to do that and just break the news to the person and walk them through that, you come out the end a completely different person. Um, having, you know, cause you share in the trauma of that. Um, yeah. so having to do that, it was just, you know, it, it was, it was hard. Um, and yeah, I would say it just, you, you come out a, a slightly different person, a little pessimistic. Um, 
but also you come through it just yeah. having connected and really just trying to help someone and do the best that you possibly can. No doubt it's your compassion for people that pulls you into that, right? Like if you if you didn't have that, you may have been able to be a sociopath about it, but, um, but the fact that it did deeply affect you, I think speaks highly of the way you think about people and the way you operate in, as a leader, so. I was just gonna say, and you, at the end of the day, when you're faced with an organization like that, you have to make a decision yourself. Um, is this yeah. what you want to be associated with? Is this what you want yeah. your brand to be? Are you, you know, is this the right place for you? Um, unfortunately, you know, I mm. did the self-reflection and that wasn't the right place for me. I, I've always tried to be at companies, mm. you know, except for one, uh, always tried to be at companies because <laughs> of what they were doing for people um, and that, mm-hmm. that emphasis on people. I'm reminded as you tell that story of times where I've done a lot to try to help somebody. And at the end of the day, they did not understand or believe that um, and how hard that is when you're like, I actually worked really hard and I really tried to be a good advocate and I tried to do all the right things and I tried. And in the end, this didn't go the way I wanted it to. And so here's the bad news. Um, and to have that person sort of look at you and sort of view you as like you're the enemy. And I assume that's that's actually a fairly common HR experience is like, you know, whatever, you were just representing the company, you never cared about me and all these different things. And there's that, that's like a part of the role to some extent that you carry. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. Um, You know, a lot of people just feel like, hey, you're a tool, you just have the best interests of the company. And that's not true. I have your best interests. (laughs) I'm trying to do the right thing for you that I can. so you definitely have that element to it. Okay, so a, a slightly lighter topic, though perhaps not too much lighter. Um, but it, this is more in the like advice. And I just, mm. I was thinking about this um, because sometimes I, I ran into situations either in the hiring process or when dealing with performance management, things like that, where I was like, well, I'm going to do this thing and it seems like the right thing to do. And I had somebody that was, you know, either a recruiter or an HR or something, someone basically inside the HR org be like, I know that sounds like a good idea and it's actually a really bad one. Um, What are the most common things that you see like, you know, leaders, managers and whatever think that like, this is going to be really good. And you're like, okay, no experience shows or legal for legal reasons. That's a very bad idea. um, And you (laughs) should not do that. Like in terms of just like, Hey, here's a couple things. Don't do these. I know you want to. Yeah. So I would say one, be very conscious about where you're taking the team, okay? <laughs> you know. Oh, like out? You mean to like a restaurant or something? Or you know, an adult. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, an adult <laughs> yeah, restaurant. Yeah. Just be very conscious about that. You know, especially you know, <laughs> it's still a work event, okay? So I say that's one. Some people are just like, I'm. I'm like, why did you take people there? Like. That was just a bad idea, man. Like, so that that is one. Um, the other okay. thing that I see people do that's just a really bad idea is, uh, and this one is low key, but um, some people might not know is managers or hiring managers that provide feedback to candidates. Um, mm-hmm. That can become tricky, <laughs> especially about you know if you do not word that correctly and. You send it on maybe LinkedIn 
it can get in, into trouble. If you're going to provide the feedback, yeah. you know, at least do it, you know, verbally. Try not to put it in writing. And mm-hmm. that's something else. You know, a lot of managers yeah. want to put certain things in writing. Be like, yeah, well, I send that to my HR business partner to check it first before I send it and help yeah. edit it. Um, just because, you know, some managers are not as eloquent in <laughs> their written communication. Um, mm-hmm. So that usually yeah. causes uh, a slight problem. Um, and obviously, those would be the, the top ones that come to mind. I'm sure there are others, though. Yeah. No, it was actually the second one that I, I tended to try to run afoul of was I'd be like, I'll just I'll just write this email with all the feedback about. And there are people who are just like, you just, you just, just look, if you have to do that, you're going to run it by me and I'm going to delete everything I don't like in it first. Um, yeah, because, you know, there's all sorts of weird little pitfalls where they can sue and mm. then you can almost be forced to hire them or pay them or all kinds of weird stuff. Yep. Documentation um, it cuts both ways, you know, try, you know. Yeah. You know, you kind of want to avoid the documentation, but there's other times you want to amp up on that documentation. Um, and so yeah. finding that balance and knowing what situations to do it and what not to do it is something that, you know, managers and people leaders just have to kind of navigate. So if you got if you both are good, I kind of want to wrap and there's this there's this a connection yep. I had in my brain right now. Uh, Aaron and I run a business, you know, Valarin. And when we started that, we were like, well, who's our accountant? Who's our lawyer? Who's our, you know, like, who are our mentors? And we tried to create a network. And I remember um, a very different situation back when I was in Afghanistan and I was at a base and there were all these different organizations that were on the base. It was a fairly large, it was a a forward operating base, pretty large. And there were all these people that I wanted to know. And there was a guy named, um, uh, he was my NCO, Sergeant First Class Jamal White. He was awesome. I learned a ton from him. One of the things that he did was I was like, I need to know who these people are and I need to know what they do so that I can, you know, get get the stuff I need to from them. He went a step further and he was always like, no, I need to have a relationship with them because it may come to we may get to a world where um, it's going to be really valuable if they've actually if they know me and I know them. And that means I'm going to help them out sometimes and that way they can help me out sometimes and it's not some sort of manipulative thing. It was just, he was honestly just a really nice guy who loved helping people, but it also meant that he was on good terms with everybody. So this is my long way of saying that that exists in almost every organization. So right now it's like a lawyer or whatever, an accountant for me um, and, and some other things. If you're in a company and you're a leader or a manager or whatever, um, you should know the facilities team and you should know this team and you should know that team and you should know HR. They should be somebody that actually you don't just know who they are, but you probably actually have sat down to lunch with them and talk with them about how things function in the org and what do they do and that sort of thing. Um, Because I didn't do that very much. Um, And when it came to it, when when certain things came to a head in my own career a couple of times, I wish I had. Um, I wish I'd spent more time talking. And then at the end, actually, Dom, you remember when I was leaving on good terms, um, but we spent a bunch of time talking. Um, and just chatted about like, Hey, how's this going to work? What does it look like for me to leave? Um, gracefully, you know, our interests are no longer aligned. That's totally okay. No one was mad. So it was in some ways it was easier, but I can imagine if it had been harder, um, I would have really liked to have known you before that moment and known how you relate and, and been able to like bounce ideas and have, you know, me and know my situation a little bit better. Um, so that's anyway, that's just a, something I'm taking away from this, um, 
know know your HR person and actually have a relationship with them. They probably will appreciate no it. No Dom specifically. <laughs> no, no yeah. matter which company you yes. work at, send them in LinkedIn. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Always welcome. Cool. Um, is there anything you want to plug for yourself before we wrap? No, no, not at all. I'm good. Okay, great. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, I appreciate y'all tuning in again. Thank you, Dom, for being here. Um, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at valarinconsulting.com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.